there's my family. <laughs> Good morning, new community. My name is Michelle Sanchez, and I want to start by introducing my family to you, if you don't already know them. Uh, my husband, Mickey Sanchez, works with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Northwestern, and our kids are Seth, who is nine, and Hope, who is six. About four and a half years ago, we moved to Chicago from the East Coast, where I now serve as an executive minister with our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, and I serve in the area of discipleship. It is um, really a joy for me to, to be here with you. Uh, this is the church that I consider to be my family, and I get to talk about my favorite subject which is discipleship. So just last weekend, I got to speak and spend some time with the ladies of Newcom. We had a good time, didn't we? <laughs> and we, again, spent time on my favorite subject, which is discipleship. And I was, of course, delighted when Pastor Peter asked if I could speak with us again about discipleship today. So for the past few months, just to get you oriented, we have been in a sermon series called Follow Me. And essentially, we've been immersing ourselves in this question of discipleship. We have been reminding ourselves what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. And we have boiled that down, most essentially, to three things. That a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, invites others to follow Jesus, and follows Jesus in community. So today, we are wrapping up number two, which is all about inviting others to follow Jesus. And then after a brief break for the holidays, the series will resume and we'll pick up with number three, following Jesus in community. Now, I did just say a few times that discipleship is my favorite subject, and it is. But actually, I want to start with something very important. I want to say this. At the end of the day, discipleship is not really what it's all about. Discipleship actually isn't really a thing. God doesn't want our lives to be all about discipleship. He wants our lives to be all about a person. He wants our lives to be all about Jesus. The difference is subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world. Discipleship, as a thing, only has value to the extent that it's all about a person, to the extent that it's all about Jesus. So that is a vital point, regardless of where you are on your journey with Jesus. If you want to go deeper, don't focus on things like right doctrine or doing good things or church stuff. And for heaven's sake, don't go deeper with politics. Um, focus on Jesus. Jesus. That's what we'll be doing today. Now, every time I have spoken at Newcom so far, every setting that I've done that, we've spent time in Matthew chapter 4, which is one of my favorite Bible passages for explaining what discipleship is about. And I know you're familiar with it. 
Matthew 4:18. When Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fishers of people. So at once they left their nets and they followed him. So right here, we have it all. We have Jesus' encouragement to follow him, to invite others to follow him, and to follow him in community. And like I said, I have probably taught about discipleship using this text more than any other. But today, uh, I actually want to take us deeper. I want to explore an alternative version of this story. It's a version which is not as neat and tidy as this one. It is grittier. It's a little bit darker. And of course, that also means it's more interesting. (laughs) It's a version that is tailored for real people with real questions and real struggles about discipleship. It's a version that also goes a little bit deeper into who Jesus really is and why that matters. So let's take a look at this other version in Luke chapter 5. You can follow along with me in your Bible or on the screen. Beginning with verse 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. For years, I've hung out so much in the Matthew version of this event that I sort of forgot about Luke's grittier version. And when I did come across it again, 
It took my breath away. And it took my breath away because I can so clearly see myself in this scripture. Like Peter, I too have cried out to Jesus in despair over myself and in despair over his call on my life. This sermon has been one of the hardest ones that I have ever prepared because it is so hard and obviously pretty vulnerable to share that part of my story. Yet I do believe that one reason that Jesus wants us to follow him in community is so that we can understand that we are not alone in our pain. We're not alone in our struggle. We're not alone in our questions as we pursue the mission of God. So let's take a closer look at this. Let's take a look at the passage deeply so we can really understand what was going on in Peter's heart which will allow us to gain some insight into our own hearts, too. So this past summer, I took a sabbatical and I had the opportunity to take a course on the life and times of Jesus at Jerusalem University College in Israel. We had the opportunity to visit a live excavation site at what may very well be Bethsaida, the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. The name Bethsaida actually means house of fishing. We took a brief walk from the excavation site to the nearby shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, which is the same thing as the Sea of Gennesaret, as it's stated in this story. And there, our class had a little chat about ancient fishing techniques. And we were, of course, in the exact spot where Peter might have embarked on countless fishing expeditions. So let's take a closer look of three of the pictures that were here. There's three common fishing techniques that were in use back at that time. And they used three different kinds of nets. The first was a cast net, which could be thrown from the land or from a boat by a single fisherman. The second was a drag net which would require a large team to drag a net which would catch fish like a sieve. And the final method, actually still in use, the only one still in use today at the Sea of Galilee, was the trammel net, and that is the kind of net that's referred to in this passage. A trammel net was made of linen and it formed a kind of wall which fish would get entangled in. It was visible to fish during the day, and so it was only used at night. In the morning, the nets would require cleaning and mending, which was exactly what we find the men doing at the beginning of this passage. So all of this background helps to explain what happened next. Jesus tells Peter and his companions in the morning, go out into the deep. Let the nets down again. We have to understand that this was actually absurd. <laughs> this advice made no sense whatsoever. Not only has an entire night's work by professionals produced nothing, 
but the nets were to be used for night fishing only. But Peter figured, okay, I'll humor you, Rabbi. (laughs) And so they put out the nets again. And to their shock, both boats are filled with so much fish that they begin to sink. So Peter knows immediately this is a miracle and this is no ordinary man. He is suddenly overwhelmed with guilt and with terror. And he exclaims, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, there's a way, if you think about it, in which this kind of response doesn't really make sense. Something wonderful just happened, right? He's a fisherman. He just hit the jackpot. And yet, there's another way in which it makes perfect sense. If Jesus is who he said he was, that is. Very often in the Bible, when people actually come into the presence of God, they are overcome with terror automatically. Like Moses at the burning bush or like Isaiah in the temple. And God has specifically told us, no one can see my face and live. Why? The scriptures say that God is like a refiner's fire. We are as precious to God as gold. And he loves us fiercely. There's no question about that. But in his holy presence, sin must be consumed. The dross has to be burned away. God doesn't see us as a problem. God created us. He loves us. He'll do anything to be with us. The problem isn't us. The problem is that old-fashioned word we don't use much anymore. The problem is sin. There is something deep down in all of us that knows that things are not as they are supposed to be that we are not as we are supposed to be. It is true that Jesus overcame sin. He overcame death through his life, through his own death on the cross. And yet we continue to struggle because for now we must continue to live in a broken world. We are in a way living in the time between the times. For a variety of reasons, I have been quite interested lately in learning more about how exemplary leaders have led the way through the challenges of war, presidents and generals and the like. Just last month, Mickey and I took a trip to Springfield, Illinois, where we had the pleasure of spending some time with Abraham Lincoln and his family. This picture was taken at the Lincoln Museum, which we highly recommend. I, I think I can say it's my favorite museum now. It's pretty great. I was fascinated by one display there, which is a map, huge map on the wall, and it lights up chronologically for every single battle fought during the Civil War and displays a running count summing up to 620,000 soldiers who died in that terrible war. And it got me thinking, 
A little-known aspect of war, any major war, is that a war doesn't end suddenly. Historically, when we look back, we can often observe that even after the larger outcome of the war is essentially settled, the enemy continues to rage, to fight, and to protest in smaller battles for years. For example, in the Civil War, many con consider the Battle of Gettysburg, 1863, to be the turning point in favor of the North. Yet, those lights continued to blink for all the skirmishes and battles and things which happened after that for at least two more years. And they refused to surrender, the South refused to surrender, even it, when it became increasingly obvious there was no way they were going to win. For World War II, many considered D-Day to be the beginning of the end. Yet battles continued to rage in various places for at least another year. And did you know that as recently as 2010, for some people, the Vietnam War isn't over either? This is a photo from a 2010 article published by The Independent, and it's entitled, The Secret Army Still Fighting the Vietnam War. Hired and armed by the CIA in the 1960s, the Hmong people remained trapped in an enemy jungle, forgotten by the world and still hoping for some kind of victory. This is a concept that actually echoes on a cosmic level. Even when the outcome is decided, the battles continue. On the cross, Jesus definitively conquered sin and death. It's done. And yet we're living in the time between the times. Jesus has removed the power of sin. But, and the consequence of it, by the way. But only in glory will he remove the presence of sin. Why is that? If God were to remove the presence of sin now, what would happen? The only way for God to destroy sin now completely would be to destroy us too. In the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. One day, the final judgment will come. One day, sin and death will be no more. But in the meantime, as we know, God is patient not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so we all struggle in various ways with the reality of ongoing brokenness in the world and in ourselves. To be honest though, we probably don't all struggle to the same extent with those things. My husband Mickey, for example, he doesn't seem to mind the persistent brokenness of the world just as much as I do. He's one of those annoying people who just never complains about anything. He's laid back all of the time. If you know him, you know what I mean. 
Of course God loves and forgives me. Everything's fine. Akuna Matata. That's my husband. And this seems to go way back with us. Um, him with his optimism, me with my pessimism. And it was hilarious. This past summer, while we were back home in New York, Mickey actually found an ancient photo of his birth announcement. It's a little faded, but here it is. He can't be more than a few months old in this photo, and he is grinning ear to ear. If you've ever had a baby, you know they don't, they don't usually smile unless they're farting or something for a while. And he's grinning. Hey, everybody, this is going to be great. <laughs> and then <clears throat> there's my baby photo. True story, this is how I look in pretty much all of my baby photos. Right from the start, I knew that life was going to be hard. On a serious note, of course, Mickey still struggles with plenty of things. Uh, most of us, even those who seem to be born smiling, struggle with what many have come to call the inner critic. This is how one psychologist described the inner critic in psychology today. It's those nagging thoughts that tell us that we're not good enough, that cast doubt on our goals and undermine our accomplishments. These thoughts might be there to greet us when we first glimpse ourselves in the mirror in the morning. You are so unattractive. You are fat. What a slob. This inner critic might meet you at work. You're under too much pressure. You'll never get everything done. No one even notices you. You should just give up. And it's there to critique your closest relationships. He doesn't really love you. No one really cares about you. It will never last. There are many theories about how this inner critic develops in us and why it's so pervasive. But from the standpoint of the Christian worldview, it's relatively simple. We live in a fallen world, broken by sin, and things are most definitely not the way they are supposed to be. That includes you, and that includes me, and something inside will continue to tell us that. For some of us, the inner critic is not so much a voice that speaks, but a bully that shouts. And that is my story. For much of my life, I've had episodes where I have struggled with tormenting guilt. I love God. I've loved God ever since I can remember, and I know with my mind, that he gives grace without measure. Nevertheless, I was plagued by a deep and gut-level conviction that somehow I was guilty of a sin that God simply could not overlook. When I was in seminary, I discovered a book called Perfecting Ourselves to Death, which described much of my experience in life to that point. And I started to see a therapist for what I called my perfectionism problem. 
Around that time, I also learned more about Martin Luther, that brilliant and irascible, cranky Christian monk who gave us the Protestant Reformation and insisted, quite rightly, that we are saved by faith and grace alone. But first, Martin Luther suffered mightily for years from a similar struggle with guilt and with agonizing worry that he had committed minor sins. He wrote, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God. I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. I was lost in death. My sinfulness tormented me day and night. I fell ever deeper into it. There was nothing good about my life. Sin had taken possession of me. Fear drove me to despair. At another point, Luther even wrote, I, Martin Luther, would have killed myself if the light of the gospel had not come. I graduated from seminary, valedictorian of my class. Things were going pretty well. Yet, after I began serving in ministry as a pastor, I began to experience even more severe episodes, probably now because the stakes were higher. Now I was not just studying about the Christian life. I had to be a respectable Christian leader. I had to be a role model. I had to be above reproach. People were watching. God was watching. Outwardly, I was leading a lovely life with my family and engaged in fruitful ministry. Yet inwardly and in my own eyes, I was gripped by the darkest kind of imposter syndrome. With Luther, I can honestly say that my sinfulness tormented me day and night. And after suffering to an almost unbearable extent, I started seeing another therapist who finally diagnosed me with a particular kind of anxiety disorder, one characterized by a chemical imbalance that basically doesn't allow me to let go of guilty feelings. So it's an actual condition. A more precise word for my experience is scrupulosity. This is another old-fashioned word that you probably don't hear very much unless you have it. Those who suffer from scrupulosity basically go through life with a diseased conscience. No matter what they do, no matter how many decisions they make and how they make them, they feel as guilty as if they had committed the worst offenses. In any religious community, there are always people that suffer from it because we care about right and wrong. However, it's not just limited to religious people. The word scrupulosity is derived from the Latin scrupus, which means sharp rock. So it's like scrupulous people have to walk around all day with a sharp rock in their shoe, enduring a piercing, nagging pain that simply won't go away. But instead of the sharp rock being in your shoe, it's in your head, and there's no getting it out. There have been moments, many moments, 
When I have said inwardly, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful woman. When I have thought in my heart, who am I to make disciples when I'm struggling as a disciple myself? This, I am told, is a question that many of you who are at the women's retreat came away asking, which is why I'm talking about this today. (laughs) I've asked myself, when? um, Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? There have been so many times when I have been too upset at God for allowing this sort of suffering to happen to me or to anyone else to want to do anything for him or with him. And many times when I have simply been too exhausted from anxiety, anger, guilt, and fear to care care at all. (laughs) So... That is why I can relate so very much to Peter. To some extent, I think we all can. Of course, not everyone struggles to the extent of those with scrupulosity, but we all struggle with that exhausting inner critic, with difficult and discouraging feelings, and with fears of inadequacy and shame. In the face of all these things, Jesus says three things to Peter, which he also says to us. Fear not, fulfill your purpose, and follow me. Fear not, fulfill your purpose, and follow me. So first he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. I can't tell you how much I love this response of Jesus. It's so unexpected. Peter just confessed to Jesus a monumentally important thing. He gave him the warning, I am a sinful man. And here's the thing, it's true. Peter is a sinful man and he knows at a gut level that if he follows Jesus, he's gonna screw things up. And guess what? The rest of the Gospels tell us how he did. (laughs) It included denying Jesus three times after promising that he would never do such a thing and deserting him on the night of his death. Only Judas had a worse record than that. But notice what Jesus doesn't say in response to Peter's admission of sin. He could have said like he did with the Samaritan woman, What you have just said is very true. He didn't say, really? I wasn't aware of that. Let's talk about it. He didn't say, I know, I know. This is why you need my sin management program. Let's start with lesson number one in how to get your act together. Nor does he even say, as some might expect Jesus to say, Your sins are forgiven. In one of the most beautiful non-sequiturs in the Bible, Jesus basically ignores Peter's confession altogether. He says nothing about his sin at all. Instead, he just utters these calming words, don't be afraid. And then he changes the subject entirely. Do not be afraid. 
Do you know this is the one imperative statement that Jesus made more than any other? Jesus doesn't overlook our sin, but he does, he has overcome our sin. And because he has overcome our sin on the cross, we do not have to be afraid. In his non-response to Peter's sin, Jesus was actually saying so much. And he says the same to us now. I'm aware of your sin. And I love you so much that I've taken it upon myself. And because of that, you do not have to be afraid. Your sins of the past, of the present, and of the future, I've got it. As you follow me, yes, you will sin. Like a toddler who's learned to walk sometimes, you will still fall. But you will also be dearly loved by me and by my community. And as you grow up in my love, sin will have less and less power over you. Yes, you are a sinner. And no, it doesn't matter. I can and I will use you even through your sin, through your doubt, through your brokenness, through your imperfection. And in fact, when people see what I can accomplish, even through you, that's when God will get the most glory. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul meant when he later said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. This is the guy that wrote a lot of our Bibles, friends. The worst of sinners. And I think that this is also what Martin Luther meant by his famous and provocative declaration to followers of Jesus to sin boldly. Of course, Luther wasn't giving free license to sin however you wanted to. That's ridiculous. But to those who might be inclined to deep discouragement because of the continuing reality of brokenness and sin, he says, sin boldly. In his letter to his preacher friend, Melanchthon, he wrote this. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ ever more boldly than that. Yes, we are sinners. Guess what? Jesus knows that. Yes, we have questions, we have doubts, we continue to struggle. Yes, we're imperfect. And God says, so what? Christ has overcome all our sin and all our brokenness so that you can be free 
to fully pursue the purposes for which you were created with great joy and without fear. So speaking of those purposes of God, that's the second thing that Jesus says to Peter and to us, fulfill your purpose. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Written by Rick Warren in 2002, it remained on the New York Times bestseller list for over 90 weeks and is one of the best-selling nonfiction books of all time. Warren actually described the book as an anti-self-help book. The first sentence of the book reads, it's not about you. Here's some bits from the opening chapter which really builds up the suspense. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point, ourselves. We ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for my future? But focusing on ourselves will never reveal God's purpose. God is not just the starting point of your life. He is the source of your life. The Bible says this. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. God has and has always had a purpose for your life. God is love. We were created by love and we were created for love. God's love for you is unspeakably lavish, and he longs to enjoy that love in a deep relationship with you. In fact, God loved you so deeply that he sent his one and only son so that you might not perish, but have everlasting life. God's also prepared a family, a family of love for you, a family which we call the church. And God calls us not to keep all this love to ourselves, but to reach out and to share that love with the world. That, all of that, is our purpose. Jesus gave Peter, and he gives us, a purpose to fulfill. And a critical, critical element of that purpose is, as he said, to fish for people to be disciples who make disciples. Now, if you ever stop to think about it, fishing is actually quite a funny metaphor to use because when you catch fish, you kill them and eat them. <laughs> so, why do we use it? And actually, it is true that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, fishing is often associated with judgment and death. 
One example is found in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. You have made people like fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. But Jesus, as he normally does, he flipped the script. Fishing for Jesus was no longer about judgment, but actually about rescue from judgment. In studying our passage in Luke 5, it was fun to learn that the Greek word, zogreo, used in verse 2 for fish, is unusual. It's derived from the Greek for zoe, life. So a more precise translation would actually be to catch alive or to capture for life. So the idea is that Jesus calls his disciples to reach out and to fish for people, which now means offering them the opportunity to get in on the abundant and eternal life of the kingdom of God. I am come, Jesus promised, that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. And here is what is even more beautiful. God wants you to do that, to join his mission in exactly the way that he designed you to do. God has a certain um, purpose uniquely for you. He's given you a certain background, a certain personality, certain passions, and the opportunity to exercise your gifts and skills in a particular vocation. Sometimes, of course, God might call you to a completely new context to further his mission. But most of the time, he desires to use you exactly where you are and exactly who you are. The point of the metaphor, as it turns out, fishing for people, is not really about fishing. Jesus used this metaphor for Peter, James, and John precisely because they were fishermen. And he was encouraging them to reimagine what it would look like for them to use their background and their experience to further the kingdom of God. And God did the same thing with Moses and David. Both were shepherds who were called by God to shepherd his people. God built upon and expanded upon the skills they already had. Remember, for example, how David killed Goliath. It was not by putting on the king's armor and pretending to be someone else, but by being himself. He targeted Goliath with a slingshot in exactly the same way that he had targeted all the other predators who had threatened his sheep before. David furthered God's mission by being himself and opening his eyes. Engaging in God's purpose for your life is not as much about changing your place or your position as it is about changing your perspective. And fishing for people is not as much about adding more things to your schedule. Who can do that? More so, it's about opening your eyes to the many opportunities that already surround you. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart to awaken you to how he wants to love others 
and share the good news uniquely through you. If you need help in reimagining what that looks like, the community of faith is here to help you. You have a particular purpose in inviting others to get to know Jesus that can only be fulfilled through you and no one else. This is where abundant life is to be found. Fulfill your purpose. And so now we've finally come full circle. Fear not, fulfill your purpose, and follow me. Peter, James, and John have let go of their fear and they have embraced the call to fulfill the purpose of God in their lives. Now, they literally leave everything behind, their livelihood, their homes, their self-conceptions, everything, to follow him. Now they are all in. Where are you, my friends, on the journey of following Jesus? The beautiful thing about a journey is that it only requires you to take one step at a time. For those who are still getting to know Jesus, how will you take a next step to get to know him better? I promise you won't regret that. And for those who do know him, what do you need to leave behind? What do you need to let go so that you can go deeper with the purposes of God in your life? What step do you need to take to go all in on inviting others to follow Jesus too. In a few moments, we're gonna close in prayer. We're gonna take communion together. And as we do, I invite you to consider what is that next step and to hold that before God. And if you still aren't sure what it is, your next step is to ask God to reveal it to you. We started today with a reminder that discipleship isn't the point. The point is a person. The point is Jesus. Step by step by step following Jesus. And today, Jesus is inviting you again. Follow me. We finish with a beautiful reflection by the British theologian Michael Reeves from his delightful little book, Rejoicing in Christ, and he wrote this. Let us get rid of that horrid, sly idea that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, there is some more sinister being, one thinner on compassion and grace. For all of our dreams, our dark imaginings of God, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus Christ. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus Christ. God has loved you with an everlasting love demonstrated lavishly through Jesus. And Jesus is even now inviting you again into that love today. Don't be afraid. Surrender to the beautiful purpose that I have for your life. Let go. Follow me. Let's pray. 
Father, as we have spent time today with Peter and with Jesus, we are reminded of all the ways that we can relate to Peter. We are reminded of all the ways in which we feel inadequate, in which our brokenness is so obviously before us. God, we pray that the love of Jesus would break through. Would you awaken us to the reality that he has indeed overcome all of that? It doesn't matter. And we are free to be who he's called us to be and to engage the purposes for which he has created us. God, following you is a journey that we get to take one step at a time. So this morning, we pray that you would whisper to each heart here what that next step is to know your love, to grow in your love, and to be all in. We are so grateful for your grace, Lord Jesus. Thank you for hearing us. And most of all, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. So now, friends, 